four children, all with ties to two different North Carolina military bases. These were innocent children who wouldn't have just run away from home. What's more frustrating is that in both cases, cold case detectives are almost 100% certain they know what happened to the children, but so much time has passed that it's difficult to prove. Whatever the case, Mark Yoli, Diane Moon, and Terry and Alan Westerfield have never been forgotten. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 11, Four Lost Children of North Carolina. In this episode, I want to talk specifically about four children, Diane Moon, Mark Yoli, and Terry and Alan Westerfield. As a mother, there's no greater fear to me than a missing child. I grew up in the 1980s, and in my early years, I spent many hours wandering around the property my grandparents lived on in rural Texas. Later on, we lived in a series of small towns, and as an only child, I busied myself playing with the neighborhood kids. I even remember one period during sixth grade where I would walk home from school by myself, and it was a good 20-minute walk that wound through a fairly suburban area. It probably wasn't the safest thing to do alone, but my parents both worked during the day, and they weren't as worried about stranger abductions back then. So imagine what life was like in the 1960s. It was the height of free-range parenting and children were expected to entertain themselves, sometimes for hours on end. I was a bit startled when I was scrolling through the photos of missing children from North Carolina and came across these four children with age progression photographs that would have put them in their mid to late 60s in present day. The reporter in me had a lot of questions about these kids, so I first started with the case of Diane Moon and Mark Yoli. Diane Moon was seven years old and her brother Mark was two and a half when they went missing. They were living with their parents, Marine Corporal Ronald Yoli and his wife Marilyn in Camp Lejeune, located in North Carolina near the city of Jacksonville. Corporal Yoli was the stepfather to Diane and the biological father of Mark. Now before I get any emails, comments, or reviews on the way I'm pronouncing Camp Lejeune, I wanted to mention for a second that I looked into the proper pronunciation of the name. I grew up in North Carolina and, like many, have always pronounced it Camp Lejeune. But when I was doing research to make sure I was saying the name of the base right, I found a few clips telling the story of the man the base is named after, Lieutenant General John Archer Lejeune. It is pronounced as if it has an R in it, although there isn't one. It's spelled L-E-J-U-E-N-E. His family pronounces the name Lejeune. I found a news clip with a retired veteran who said the camp was originally called Lejeune when he was at boot camp, but over time, it became pronounced the other way because of how it's spelled. Because news anchors have decided to use the pronunciation Lejeune, I decided I will do the same throughout this episode to remain consistent, and because that is the wish of the Lejeune family. Now that we have that out of the way, let's return back to Diane Moon and Mark Yoli. On the morning of September 13, 
1962, the kids left their home in the Midway Park neighborhood of Camp Lejeune to go play at a nearby park. The timeline for the day they went missing has some holes in it since it happened so long ago and it also sounds like the kid's mother wasn't in the habit of keeping a close eye on them. An article I found on the missingkids.org site said that Diane and Mark had a habit of wandering away from home while playing and had been hard to locate in the past. When Marilyn went to look for the kids later that afternoon, she couldn't find them. It seems like the initial thought was that the children were lost in the area surrounding the park. It was reported that more than a thousand Marines participated in a search to look for the two missing kids, including in a dense, swampy area near the neighborhood. In an archived newspaper article from the week they went missing, there's a photograph of a large group of Marines taking a break from the search of the wooded areas bordering Camp Lejeune. In a 2014 article that ran in the Jackson Daily News, Major John Lewis of the Onslow County Sheriff's Office discussed the disappearance of Diane and Mark. He said that they had always been aware of a suspect, but could never gather enough evidence to charge him. He believes the children died not long after they went missing. Ed Brown, who served as Onslow County's sheriff from the years 1990 to 2014, was in high school when the massive search for Diane and Mark was taking place. In the article from missingkids.org, Brown shared that he had dated a girl who lived near a couple named Marjorie and Henry Hunt, who were the subject of neighborhood gossip. Even though the Hunts lived about 13 miles away from the park where Diane and Mark had gone missing, local residents were always a little suspicious because they knew Henry Hunt was a convicted sex offender. Brown's girlfriend had a German shepherd that would occasionally get loose, and it always made a beeline for the crawlspace beneath the Hunt home. Brown always thought of that when the case would come up. And then, in 1992, after Ed Brown had been elected sheriff, Marjorie Hunt who was divorced from Henry by that time, called and said she knew what had happened to Diane and Mark. Unfortunately, Marjorie died before the sheriff's department could question her, and Henry Hunt was already dead. But Marjorie had told her daughter, Henry said he had picked up the kids on the day they went missing and took them fishing on his boat. According to his story, Mark fell into a river and drowned, and then Henry panicked and killed Diane so she wouldn't tell anyone. He claimed he had taken them to a nearby rock quarry and hidden their bodies. None of this story could be confirmed, though, because all the alleged parties were dead. In 1992, Brown led a search with agents from the Naval Criminal Investigative Services and a local news reporter to that rock quarry in Maysville. Unfortunately, they quickly figured out that due to the nature of fluctuating quarries and lakes feeding into the area, it would be impossible that any remains would still be there some 30 years later. After the disappointing trip out to the quarry, Brown still thought the children could have been buried on the Hunt property. But after a developer purchased the land and demolished the home, nothing was found where the crawl space had been located except for a few animal bones. At the time they went missing, Diane had blonde hair, blue eyes, weighed about 79 pounds, and stood 3 feet 11 inches tall. She was wearing a white or printed blouse and shorts. She would be 66 years old now. Mark was wearing a t-shirt and brown shorts. He would be 60 years old now. The case is still considered open. 
Anyone with information is encouraged to contact 1-800-THE-LOST or 1-800-843-5678. And now, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. I've always enjoyed writing fiction, but I didn't really get serious about it until I was in my 30s. After submitting to the WOW Flash Fiction Contest a few times, I was thrilled when I placed as a runner-up with my piece titled In the Depths. WOW still hosts a quarterly writing contest every three months, and I highly recommend entering it. The entry fees are minimal, and you can also purchase a critique to get feedback on your story once the contest concludes. The mission of this contest is to inspire creativity, great writing, and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally, age is of no matter, and entries must be in English. Literary agent Erica Christensen with the Metamorphosis Literary Agency will be serving as the judge for the finalists in this contest. You can learn more about the guidelines at wow-womenonwriting.com. Submit your entry by August 31st for the summer contest. And now, let's get back to our next story. The original report about Terry Westerfield, age 11, and his brother Alan, age 7, was that their stepfather had dropped them off at the Broadway Theater on Hay Street in downtown Fayetteville, North Carolina, around 4 p.m. on September 12, 1964. The boys loved watching movies and would have loved catching a double feature, as they had done many times in the past. When their stepfather, Carl Bach, returned to pick them up, They weren't waiting for him on the corner outside the theater where they said they would be. Hours later, their mother Margie Westerfield Bach reported them missing. Before I go any further into this story, I want to take a look into the relationship between Alan and Terry's mother and stepfather. Once I started reading more about this case, especially in an in-depth article that was published a year ago in the Wilmington Star News, written by a staff writer named Nancy McCleary, I realized the strained relationship between Margie and her soon-to-be ex-husband, Carl Bach, was an important factor in the boy's disappearance. Margie had initially met Carl when she was only 18 years old and working at the Fort Bragg Post Exchange. While he was romantically interested in her, she thought of him more as a friend and continued to date other people. This is when she met Mel Westerfield, and for a while, continued to date both men at the same time. Carl even presented Margie with an engagement ring, which she accepted, but didn't break off her relationship with Mel. Eventually, the Army reassigned Carl and he left Fort Bragg, leaving Margie to marry Mel and have the two boys with him. After a stint in Germany, Mel was reassigned to Fort Bragg. By the time he returned, bringing Margie, Alan, and Terry with him, the marriage was on the rocks. Carl was conveniently there to help pick up the pieces, and Margie married him soon after. From the reports I've read with the investigators who worked on the case, Carl didn't really seem to care for the boys, which can put a strain on any marriage that already had a shaky start. He also worked as a military police officer at Fort Bragg. I'm not sure how long Carl and Margie were married, but it doesn't seem like more than a year, and by the time the boys disappeared, she was trying to officially end things. It doesn't sound like Carl was still living in the home. Here's a look at the timeline a team of investigators were finally able to piece together after studying the case as part of their cold case unit in the past 20 years. On Saturday, September 12th, Margie was scheduled to work an early shift at a local hair salon. 
she left the boys in the care of a babysitter, who was supposed to stay at the home all day. Around 11 a.m., Carl showed up and tried to convince the babysitter that he could stay there with the boys. She stalled until he convinced her to leave. Some of Terry's neighborhood friends saw Carl outside the home on the day of the boys' disappearance. This would have been before he took them to the movie theater. They saw Alan outside riding his bicycle, but not Terry. Now remember that Alan was the younger of the two boys at age seven. The neighbor children asked if Terry could come out and play, and Carl told them, no, he was inside the house being punished and wouldn't be able to come out. Now here's a chilling detail. Around 2 p.m., a neighbor reported seeing Carl standing by his station wagon that had been backed up to the house. He couldn't tell what Carl was doing specifically. According to what Carl told investigators later, he took the boys to the movie theater around 4 p.m. He then returned home to wait for Margie. When she got home from work at the hair salon, she was angry to find Carl there and to learn he had sent the babysitter home. He told her he took the boys to the movies and he would pick them up. She then got changed and left for an evening at the NCO club on the Pope Air Force Base nearby, a clear indication she was moving on from their relationship. But when she returned around 1 a.m., Carl was still at the house and told her he went to pick the boys up from the theater around 7.45 p.m. and that they weren't there. He waited around, supposedly, until around 9 p.m. and then left. Margie finally called the police around 2 a.m. to report the boys missing. What I found intriguing was that no one could prove the boys were ever at the theater. Some employees thought they may have seen them. Others swore the boys were never there. The two films showing at the double feature were a Western and a science fiction film. Do you know how many young boys with blonde and red hair and freckles probably attending the showings? It could have been a lot. Also, employees that knew the boys by name said they never waited for anyone outside of the theater. Their mother always insisted they stay in the lobby and she would meet them there. They didn't remember Carl coming in to ask about the boys or look for them. In the 48 hours that Terry and Alan went missing, Hurricane Dora, which was classified as a Category 2 hurricane, swept into the area, hindering any outside searches that could have taken place. The first thought that occurred to me is, why would Carl take the boys to the movie theater and drop them off for a fun afternoon if Terry was supposed to be punished? That story doesn't add up. Between the time he dropped off the boys at the theater and the time he picked them up, he claimed he was at Margie's home, reading the newspaper. Why was he hanging around the house with no one there? From what I could see in some archived news articles from 1964, the investigators with the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department initially met with criminal investigation agents from Fort Bragg in the days after the boys went missing. They also asked for assistance from the FBI. Detectives also followed up on tips that the boys could be in Bennettsville, South Carolina, or Chacawinity, North Carolina, where they questioned a woman who was dating Mel Westerfield at the time. Nothing ever came out of those searches, and it seems like Mel was eventually cleared as a suspect. He never stopped trying to locate his sons and followed up every lead that found its way to him. He took his own life in 1978. It sounds like investigators on a cold case task force led by the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation 
zeroed in on Carl as a plausible suspect back in 2000. They traveled to West Virginia to interview him, where he was dismissive and cagey at 80 years old, refusing to even call the boys by their names. In 2012, two police detectives from the Fayetteville Police Department took another shot at interviewing Carl and even offered him immunity if he gave any indication of where the boys could be found. He replied that he was a former military police officer and he knew better than to take such a deal. Margie eventually moved to South Carolina and died in 2003 at the age of 73. Carl died in 2016 without ever providing closure for the Westerfield case. He was 93. The investigators in the unit believe the boy's remains will be found one day. Although there are age progression photos that exist showing what Alan and Terry would look like today, the most prevalent theory is that they died during the afternoon they were last seen. News station WRAL ran a short segment on the case in 2013 where they included an archived interview they had taken with the boy's uncle in the late 1990s. September 12, 1964. The day six-year-old Alan Westerfield and his 11-year-old brother Terry vanished in Fayetteville. I've come to the conclusion that those children are dead. John McDougald spoke of his nephews in a WRL interview nearly 14 years ago. They love to be children. They love to play. They love to ride their bikes. They like to go to movies. My whole family was completely devastated by that. At the time of their disappearance, Alan Westerfield was seven years old and weighed 80 pounds. He was three feet, 10 inches tall, with dark blonde hair and blue eyes. He also had a speech impediment. According to his stepfather, he was wearing brown pants and a blue shirt. Terry Westerfield was 11 years old and weighed 110 pounds. He was four feet, 10 inches tall and had red hair and blue eyes. He was wearing short jeans and a striped t-shirt. Investigators are still hopeful someone will come forward about this case one day. Anyone with tips is encouraged to contact the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office at 910-323-1500. This brings us to the conclusion of Episode 11. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram and Facebook, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. If you want to visit my blog and read about more true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at ReneeLRoberson at gmail.com with any details you can share. Again, that's ReneeLRoberson at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womanonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. <laughs>